ISIS also relies a lot on um, so-called for-profit fighters. We interviewed one fighter defector from ISIS who basically said that those people would convert to Christianity if it pays well. For those of us who haven't experienced it, it's almost impossible to imagine the terror and uncertainty that come when your community becomes a war zone. All of a sudden, you're faced with choices you might never have thought possible before. Do you run? Do you stay and lie low? Or do you pick up arms and fight? And if so, who do you fight with or for? These are questions nearly all Syrian citizens have been forced to answer at some point in the last five years of civil war. So how do they choose? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Vera Miranova, a research fellow jointly with the Kennedy School's Belfer Center International Security Program and Women in Public Policy Program, who's been studying how people make choices in areas of conflict. Vera, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I think this is something that most people can't really uh, associate with, being just being in your hometown, for instance, and all of a sudden conflict descends upon you, uh, and you have to make a choice. You have to do something. You can run. You can choose to join an organization and fight. Uh, Can you talk about the choice that they're making and what they're facing when they do? Actually, it's it's even worse than you explained. They have to make several choices on the way. Because first, when the war came to a town, what are your options? You could stay as a civilian, you could leave as a refugee, or you could join the war. If you choose the, for example, if you choose to flee, the question is where, right? But when you choose to <clears throat> stay, uh, then it's like even more complicated right now, because then you, and you choose to stay and fight, so you have to choose a group to fight with. And as we know, you know, from Syria, for example, right now I think there are like more than thousand brigades. So the second choice could be actually more important than the first one. It, there are a, a tremendous number of groups. You said a thousand brigades, I but even among the different combatants, you have uh, Daesh, or also known as ISIS, you have al-Nusra, you have the Kurds, you have, of course, al-Assad's forces. How, how do people make those decisions? It's a very complicated set of decisions because first, <clears throat> first they d- need to decide to go fight and choose a side, right? Like if they want to fight for Assad, for example, or want to fight with a position, for example, if they choose a position, they need to choose in between groups inside their position. And the, choi- uh, the choice to join had nothing to do, join in the first place to, uh, to go as a fighter, has actually honestly that much to do with the cho- choice of brigade because then the different uh, different decision making comes in play. For example, uh, people based on our surveys we, con- we conducted in Syria, we know that people joined uh, joined first. They they took up weapons and joined a position because of the grievance uh, of the grievance that they had against Assad. So uh, the most popular responses on the question why did you join were uh, that we need to revenge Assad, we need to defeat him, and we need to secure our neighborhoods. So that was a, a decision of why did they become a fighter in the first place. Mm-hmm. But when we asked them why did you choose a particular group to join, the decision went absolutely different. Um, and the decision-making process itself was also different. For example, they were choosing a group to join uh, in the same on the same side based on its institutional qualities. <laughs> so like how much they paid or... 
Exactly. So, for example, you know, as a civilian in the United States, for example, you go, you decide to be an engineer, right? So first you decided to become an engineer. Then you look at schools, right, uh, that teach to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And you choose between them after you decided to be an engineer. Based on, you know, in case of schools, you look at how much, you know, the stipend you could get. Mm -hmm. uh, if they have a good... Um, if they have a good advisor, a good program, a good colleagues. So it's not much different because mm -hmm. those guys have to work in this particular environment. So they would prefer to have salary, right? I mean, at least not salary like money, for example, but at least uh, some food provided to them, right? Mm -hmm. They would honestly like to have a, a leadership which is you know, nice to them, takes mm -hmm. care of them. And good colleagues, so they want to be in a unit which is cohesive and you know, to have a guy next to you that you could rely on. Mm -hmm. and now, obviously, uh, groups like ISIS and al-Nusra have a heavy religious component. Do you find that people who choose to join those groups are doing it because they because of the religious component, or are there other things in play? I would. Mm, ISIS is a little bit different because they have different goal. So people who, for example, choose to fight for opposition, they are not choosing it between, for example, Free Syrian Army and ISIS. They are choosing between groups that are fighting for the goal they want to fight. Mm -hmm. And because ISIS has a different goal, it's a different it's a different labor market. They are, they are different people. So people who would consider who are considering and who are joining ISIS, they are not comparing between, let's say, uh, Free Syrian Army and ISIS mm -hmm. because of the different goals. Sure. For ISIS is to build caliphate. So mm -hmm. a lot of people joined who are interested in particular this goal. Mm -hmm. But there is not so many people, so ISIS also relies a lot on um, so-called for-profit fighters. Mm -hmm. Who um, we interviewed one fighter defector from ISIS, who basically said that those people would convert to Christianity if it pays well. Interesting. And what? How? How big of a percentage of the the uh, fighting force is like that in ISIS? Yes, I would say it was majority. The majority? I w Assyrians, not foreign fighters. Foreign fighters came because they want, the go their goal is caliphate and so on. Mm -hmm. But local Syrians, some of them went there to fight for money because ISIS pay paid mm -hmm. before. Uh, right now they don't have much money, but before mm -hmm. they paid way more. Than. And even if you don't want to actually work for them, not that you have so many choices. And plus, also they right now when they run out of people to actually whom they could actually pay, they're drafting. So you're getting all this information f directly from the fighters in the field in a current combat zone. Uh, you're surveying them. Can you describe how the steps that you need to take to get kind of uh, uh, trustworthy information out of a place like that? Right. First of all, it's important to notice that we don't actually ask anything sensitive. We're very careful of not asking anything that could be considered like intelligence mm -hmm. because it's going to endanger people who actually do surveys. So basically, we're asking them about their decision making and it's something, you know, like we talk about it in a grad school, right? Like, why did you come here? Oh, I mean, my my family is nearby, so I choose this school. Mm -hmm. So that's something they don't consider intelligence, so they're not I mean, they're very open about it. They write it up on Facebook. They talk uh, between themselves about it. Sure. So that's kind of safe because of the topic we're studying. But also, um, I have local uh, Syrian enumerators who are conducting surveys. 
and um, we have permission from the groups who are in the ground to conduct uh, to interview their fighters. Mm. Now, I imagine this kind of study has been performed before. It, certainly, uh, you know, after conflicts, going back and interviewing people and finding out why they chose whatever particular course of action. Uh, why is this different? Uh, there were a lot of studies, uh, very good studies, that were looking at a conflict, especially in Africa, post-conflict. There is co- there are a couple of problems. First of all, they were they were serving not just post-conflict; they were uh, serving after the foreign intervention, that also add up, you know, in, in decision making. Like international peacekeepers. International peacekeeping, mm-hmm. yeah. Because, I mean, it's safer to go with peacekeepers to talk to fighters post-war. But there are, like, major problems. First of all, uh, people don't, especially emotions, you forget them very quickly. Interesting. So, um, especially po- after the war, it's like five years of fighting plus a couple of years in a peace, in a peace setting. So, mm-hmm. you, the first thing you forget is emotions was confirmed by uh, psychological studies. But another problem is that, you know, people die. Right. So and they di- don't die randomly. So basically, maybe the most dedicated to the goal people, they are not going to be available for you to talk to after the oh, conflict okay. because they're dead. Interesting. I, I imagine when you saw this problem, uh, you realized at some point that you were going to have to get people who were in the conflict zone. Uh, describe your thought process when when you realized that and how you went about actually pursuing pursuing the data. Um, I mean, technically, after we realize that we need to study, like it's crucial, important, also for policy implication to understand how do they uh, make decisions, um, so we could somehow affect the decision or um, and so on. We, which is a conflict, because it's a theoretical study. First of all, it's academic study, and um, that is also generalizable to Ukraine, for example, because we basically see the same uh, same results there, the same decision making process. Um, and then we, which is uh, um, Syria as a country, and we started looking into how feasibly we could do that, what we could do, like from the actual feasibility point, mm-hmm. because there are, again, a lot of limitations on what we could actually do on the field. Sure. Was there anything in particular that stuck out to you when t- once you started uh, getting everything together? Honestly, I did not expect that there are so many decisions involved. So for example, we think when we watch TV, like, oh, they went to fight because of this. They are fighting because of this. And yeah, but it's just one part of their decision making. And again, they also have to make a decision of quitting. They're making decisions. I mean, there are a lot of people from Syria right now who quit fighting. Mm-hmm. And then also they're changing brigades. So we could not, and it's a very important to know that from a policy perspective, because if we're gonna, I mean, we need to move this as fast as they move in their decisions with our policies. Mm-hmm. Because we could not like do anything about why they joined the war in the first time. When they, right now they're switching five times, so we need to look at why they're switching the seventh time. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we are outdated. So when it comes down to it, uh, are there key factors involved that can be identified as good reasons for why someone will pick a particular course of action? Yes, I mean, right now we could a little bit more than before. I couldn't say it's ideal, of course mm-hmm. not. There is a lot we do not understand uh, about the conflicts and fighters and decision-making. But now we could, for example, uh, we know which brigades, what what does a brigade do to be the most, um, to be considered the best brigade you know, from the side of the fighter. Mm-hmm. So we know which brigades they choose to switch to and why. So basically knowing that, we could kind of, you know, make a policy 
how to destroy those brigades if those are bad brigades. And unfortunately, right now, we could say that those are not, I mean, they're the they're worst brigades. <laughs> unfortunately, they're right now kind of the most successful in recruiting. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I said fight or flight before, mm -hmm. um, but you could also stay. What happens for those who choose not to fight? And stay. In e a, uh, and either stay or, or choose to leave. Uh, people leave for the reasons very basically obvious to us. They leave because fighting, uh, staying in a war zone doesn't give you anything. I mean, it doesn't pay anything, and it's dangerous. So basically, the most popular answer was uh, people threaten me to threaten me to kill me, and it's dangerous. So I'm, you know, I'm leaving, mm -hmm. which is very understandable from our, you know, point of view. Sure. But people who stayed, they stayed basically for two main reasons. First being, uh, I need to stay to protect my family uh, and my house. Mm -hmm. uh, but also people stayed as civilians uh, because they said that they want to help. Uh, they still want to have the, help the war, help fighters. And, the f and actually they said they were using the word, we stayed to fight hmm. for civilians. And yes, uh, in the beginning it was like, but you're civilians and you're not fighting, right? Like, so exactly what are you doing? But um, in US, for example, we have a lot of logistics. We have someone who cooks food for f our fighters, right? right? It's a unit, it's a separate unit, mm -hmm. and they're considered military. Um, I mean, they are officially integrated in US Army. Uh, while uh, rebels, they don't have this luxury. So, especially in the beginning, they were relying a lot on civilians. Hmm. So, civilians, for example, cooked for them. So, imagine a guy who was running a bakery before the war. Mm -hmm. So, he has two options, basically. Uh, but he, he believes in the, in the cause of the war. He also wants uh, Assad out. Mm -hmm. And so, he has two options. He could become a fighter, uh, a rather bad fighter, because he honestly didn't do it before, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Or he could stay and continue to be a baker and bake bread for fighters. Mm -hmm. So technically, he's also supporting, helping the cause, and he's also, you know, fighting because sure. he's trying to advance the the brigade or the, the cause. So, but he's a civilian. He never touched a weapon. Mm -hmm. Are there differences between the folks who stay and the ones who leave uh, beyond just, you know, their particular situations? Uh, the main difference is their level of grievance. Like, for example, in, in a utility function of people who left, they, they don't even think about it. They think about, you know, I need to continue my education. I need very rational perspective in our sense that, you know, like, I need money. I need to be safe. Mm -hmm. So, and there is, I could not get it in the war zone. Mm -hmm. So, I'm out. Sure. While for people who decided to stay, it's more like, yeah, okay, I'm also interested in that stuff, of course, right, as any human being. But... I'm more interested in actual goals of the war. Mm -hmm. You've been able to pull together this information and kind of a profile of the various people who are actively fighting in these zones. Are there takeaways that we can use actively to stop what's going on in Syria now, but also uh, translate this to other pre-war uh, areas where conflict may be coming, but there might be something we can do to slow things down. Yes, absolutely. For example, if, if people stayed to fight and stayed in a conflict zone uh, for the grievance reasons, you know, if, we, if not we, but like if the government addressed those grievance uh, reasons, the conflict would not have happened, of course. right? Or, for example, then when, they, when it already happened and people were choosing a brigade to join, if there is a particular brigade we need them to join, we want, or there's a particular brigade we don't want them to join, 
we could also affect it by knowing how do they choose. And for example, one of the very, I found it interesting findings of mm, why they were joining a particular brigade was insurance, medical insurance, <laughs> which is again, understandable. You know, when you're sure. choosing a job, mm-hmm. you actually do review the medical right. policy the job provides to you, right? <laughs> of course. And it's an important reason. So, and, and you know, you don't expect to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And for you, it's like if, and for them, it's when. Right, yeah. So uh, medical and life insurance, insurance not in the sense like they don't have a piece of paper, right? Right, yeah. But um, how uh, brigades care about their fighters, it's very important for the fighter. Um, so for example, if the brigade has a medical uh, doctor, do they pay for medical bills? Do they pay for medical of the wounded fighter? So they have to not leave him there to die, but to actually take care of him and to pay for his, while he's in the hospital, to actually bring him to the hospital. Right. And also when he's dead, he has a family. What are they going to do? So a lot of brigades, they, um, so the brigades who actually won this uh, comp- internal competition on one side between brigades on uh, you know recruitment com- uh, com- competition, they were very strong in this medical terms like our policy we never leave anyone behind right mm-hmm. never so, th- so so do they so if the, someone get gets wounded it's they're absolutely they're gonna take care of him they're gonna bring him they're gonna buy him medicine they're gonna take care they're gonna pay for you know surgery or whatever if he's dead uh if he dies they're gonna take care of funerals uh I mean, it's kind of important because some people uh some fighters are not from even rebel territory they are from uh Assad controlled territory so that like they could their body could not be even returned and their mm-hmm. family could not travel to you know even funeral so they're gonna do that plus if their family is inside someone has to take care of them so uh, brigades they continue to pay the salary of the fighter to his um, family and you know support them otherwise you've brought this kind of analysis to Syria but you've also done it in Ukraine you mentioned Balkans mm-hmm. the Congo Are these lessons broadly applicable? Are these, I mean, is it, I I imagine every fighter in every war is going to be interested in how they they get treated medically. It becomes more and more common. You know why? Because previously we didn't have so many brigades. You know, if you think of, okay, war in Bosnia, on one side we basically had everyone on the umbrella of, you know, Sarajevo, if -hmm. we're talking on uh, Bosnia side, right? Or if we're talking about Serb side, there were like basically three main brigades but they were all taking orders and their policy were they were taking orders from belgrade and their policy was the same mm-hmm. right they had the same hospital everything but right now we have more of fractionalized um opposition so it's become becomes more applicable you know with wars coming up well vera miranova is a research fellow jointly with the kennedy school's belfer center international security program and women in public policy program Thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you for inviting me. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Lauren Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter.